God, as we come this morning, I pray that our what we just sang with our lips would be true of our hearts, that we would come here with open hearts to hear from you. And even that takes a work of your spirit to open our hearts to the things that maybe we don't even know we need to hear, to open our eyes to things we have already seen um, and need to be freshly amazed at, and to change us, to make us more like you. I pray that we would heed your word this morning as it's been preserved for us, uh, now delivered through a broken vessel to your people. I pray that we would leave knowing that we've been in your presence. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good to see everybody. I'm excited to be with you this morning. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the words up on the screens, but if you want to grab one of the chair Bibles, um, there should be some around you, and you can go to page 955 is where we'll be. So we, uh, we make it our pattern as a church to, to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we've been studying through 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, and I'll hopefully, hopefully be able to give you a little bit of context so you know kind of where we're jumping in. What did you expect? Like, what did you expect when you, when you took your most recent job? Like, what did you expect when you entered into that relationship? Maybe even your marriage. Like, what did you expect when you started that class recently? You know, we have all sorts of situations and settings and relationships where we need to know the expectations up front. And Haley and I, over the years, my wife Haley and I, over the years, have had a chance to do premarital with a lot of couples. And one of the things we talk about is expectations. Because if you don't, if you don't go into a relationship, and this applies to a relationship with God, with clear and realistic and biblical expectations, what at least is going to happen is you're going to be led into places of disappointment, a discouragement, like disillusionment. It's going to be disorienting for you. And so as we look at this morning, I would submit like one of the primary things we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, which is where the primary command is in this text, is really an expectation setting for the Christian life. So this book, this very short but packed book, is written to Christians in what's current day Turkey. So they've been dispersed about, and because of their faith in Jesus, they're encountering difficulty, primarily because they have trusted in Jesus and are seeking to walk with him. So simply because they're Christians and want to follow God, they're going through difficulty. And you've seen that in various ways. We'll continue to see it through really the end of chapter four. But the picture is that in this life, as believers, if we follow God, there will be difficulty that comes simply because we're seeking to follow God. And that is a, a right, although it's maybe not a comfortable expectation, it's good and right and healthy and biblical for us to have a frame of reference that in the Christian life, if we follow God, it's not always going to be good in this life. There's going to be suffering and challenge. And so at the beginning of our text this morning, we're confronted with that reality once again. Let's read verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4, and we'll go back and make some observations. This is God's word from chapter 4. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer 
for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, those who don't know God, what they want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead or already dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are here on this earth, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter has already communicated to the scattered Christians in current day Turkey the nature of Jesus' suffering. So back in chapter 2, we see how Jesus' suffering is, is a pattern that we are to follow. That even though he suffered, he didn't revile, even though he was spoken ill of, he didn't revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to the Father. And that's a pattern we're called to follow. But last week, you might remember if you were here with us, what we also see is that Jesus' suffering isn't just a pattern of life to follow, although it is that. Jesus' suffering is the provision for our sin. The pattern to follow and the provision for our sin. He paid our debt in full that Christ Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. We looked at, we tried to sit underneath the weight of the miracle of being brought face to face with the living God through the work of Jesus. And apart from Christ, we'd have no business in the presence of God, but with Jesus, we've been, we've been brought near. In our text today, Peter continues his encouragement to embattle believers, still very much anchored to the suffering of Jesus, commending us in the midst of persecution and mistreatment to arm ourselves. That's the primary command, is take up arms, but maybe in a way that's surprising to us. Look back at the text just for a minute. Verse 1 since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, he's our, he's our pattern and our provision, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We can be excited about the notion of arming ourselves. That sounds good. But then you keep reading. You're like, wait a second. Like you're saying arm myself, like put on me the same mentality of suffering that Jesus went through. Have the same mind that Jesus had, particularly in the realm of his suffering. That's that's a difficult call, but Christians are to think the same way Jesus thought. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, Paul goes so far as to say that Christians are so united with Jesus that we possess the mind of Christ. There's such a, a link between us and the life of Jesus that we share in the way that we see the world, with the way we see ourselves in relationship to God and other people. In Colossians 3, Paul exhorts the church to put on the, the character of Christ, to be marked by the, the love of Christ, to possess the peace of Christ, and that the word of Christ would richly dwell within us, all for the glory of Christ. So the word of Christ, so as we think about the, this picture of arming ourselves the same way of Jesus, like arm yourselves with the mind that Jesus had, the best way we can do that is by looking at the word of Christ. So we sing this song, Ancient Words, and we come here and we hear the preaching of God's word. Why? Because in it we find the, the revelation of God for his plan for us, our pattern of life, 
our hope through the person and work of Jesus Christ and what life should look like in light of us being submitted to him. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And one of the things I wrestled with this week, just thinking about this text and the difference it makes for us, is the one thing we have to be reminded of as well is that the word of God not only reveals to us the mind of Christ, but it evaluates our way of thinking. Like it really becomes the grid by which we see the world. And we evaluate our own decisions and perspectives. Let me give you an example of this. In Hebrews chapter 4, the same picture is given of the, the way of thinking or the intentions of our hearts. And it says this, Hebrews 4.12, a passage that's familiar to many of us. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions. There's our words, the way of thinking of our hearts. So the call is arm yourselves with the same mind and purpose of Jesus. See your life in Christ the way Jesus depicted it. So there's a question in there. This is how I just got to push it out of the room for us to consider. Is do you view your walk with Jesus the way the Bible depicts your walk with Jesus? Like do we view our walk with God in this world the way the Bible depicts what our, our walk with God in this world will be like? Or have we subtly developed through various other means some aberration of what the Bible teaches? What informs our expectations of the Christian life? And one of the pervasive things that I would say we can subtly or overtly buy into is is the so-called prosperity gospel that comes in all sorts of forms. But essentially is this. If you follow God, good will happen to you. In the most eternal sense, that is right. But unfortunately, what that message comes with is that if you follow Jesus, everything in this life will result in health and wealth and prosperity. And that's an aberration of what the Bible teaches. I would submit it straight from hell. Because you read your Bible, it doesn't take you very long to realize that in this life, you follow God, it might end badly for you. But the mark of the Christian is that even though that might be the case, I will follow Jesus still. And that's what we see next. Is that even if suffering comes to me because I follow Jesus, there's been a break that's happened in my life with sin and with worldly passions and pleasures. And I follow Jesus. So arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Share in the sufferings of Christ. It's in chapter 4, verse 13. For those who wish to come after Christ, we will live a a life of self-denial And in Paul's words, the most famous Christian of all times, a man who said that he always carries in the body the death of Jesus. So what? So that the life of Jesus might be displayed in his human frame. There are different ways that y'all experience the dying in the flesh. And some of you this day, because of your faithfulness to God, are receiving ridicule, persecution, resistance, alienation from those who don't know God simply because you follow Christ. But will we follow Christ still? Is he, is he worth it to us even if we face resistance in this life? And that's really the call is arm yourselves with the same 
mentality. Christ was mistreated, expect to be mistreated. Christ was ridiculed, expect to be ridiculed. We need to arm ourselves with this mentality. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, is back to verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This isn't talking about sinless perfection in this life. But the Bible gives a depiction. Y'all have heard me preach this before. We talk about it at baptism. Baptism reflects a break with an old way of life. You put away a former manner of life in such a way that sin is, is not your master anymore. It doesn't reign in your life, in your physical frame, in your decisions. Although we still battle in this life, it doesn't reign as king in our life, sin that is. We're dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. And church families, our mind is conformed to the mind of Christ. You know what follows? Is our life increasingly is conformed to the life of Christ. As our mind is conformed to the mind of Christ through this word, increasingly so, our life, what we do, what we say, the things we partake in, our passions and pursuits and pleasures, all of those things will be increasingly conformed to the life of Jesus. When we suffer in the flesh, in this life, for doing what is good, and we continue to follow Christ, something of what's said, it seems eternally, is like, you must really be alive. Christian, if you choose to follow Jesus, even though it brings you hardship, there must be a real change that's taking place in you. You cease from sin in that sense. You no longer pursue the things of the world the way you used to thinking that somehow you can squeeze life out of places where only death is promised. You ceased from sin. No longer to live according to the passions of the world, but according to the will of God. Old things really have passed away. New things have really come. Otherwise, you wouldn't choose suffering over sin. That's the picture here. If you didn't really love Christ, if you weren't really following him, you give up. You choose sin over suffering. But for the believer, because we love Jesus enough and we see the reality of eternity, we're just passing through here. Whatever suffering occurs here is temporary. Momentary light affliction producing for God's people an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And therefore, we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We abandon the will of man and we make the will of God our ambition. In verse 3, there's something kind of interesting that Peter says. He says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What he seems to be saying is like, hey, as you look at your former manner of life, haven't you spent enough time on the things of the world? Like if you're in Christ, look back at a former manner of life and our assessment of that season is like, you know, I've already spent enough time there. In fact, too much time. I've already spent enough time. The time past suffices for chasing the wind, for trying to find life in places where God says it's not going to be found. Hasn't the time in the past served as evidence to you that there is no life in those places? That's the argument being made in this text. The time in the past is sufficient. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, puts it this way. If you've ever looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's this development of a story about how everything 
is vanity. The word vanity in the Old Testament, this section means it's like a breath. It's like a whisper. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's passing. And I'm gonna read chapter two, verses one through 11 because it's so good in relation to this text. I just feel led to read the whole thing. In chapter two, verse one through 11, it says, I said in my heart, this is Solomon talking about his own pursuit of things in the world. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and and a pleasure. What use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay a hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. There's a switch that takes place. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vanity. All of it. Hasn't the time in the past sufficed to prove to you that living apart from God will never bring you life? So live for him now. Live for him today. Pursue life where life can truly be found. That's the human problem from the beginning as we scramble in creation to find life in places where only death is promised. Hasn't the time already spent doing those things been sufficient, living for the will of man, pursuing sensuality and sexual immorality, trying to find refuge and losing your inhibitions through alcohol or drugs. It's empty every single time. The things of this world promise to fill you, they leave you what? Empty. They're vanity. But for the Christian, we know the will of God is worth chasing and the will of God is what we were made for or remade for. We live not for our own will, but for the will of God. He's our delight. He's our reward. We belong to him. And that's why the world is surprised by us. Like, what is going on with these people? Strange weirdos to the world, right? That's what Peter says next, verse 4. With respect to this, all those worldly pursuits, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Have you ever had someone be surprised by your behavior as a Christian? So early on in my walk with Jesus, when I say early on, months in, I came to faith in college and 
shortly after I met Haley, I came to faith. And so I had this moment, and I think it was at a high school reunion where I actually connected with a couple college friends of mine, my best friends in college. And that was, for me, it was the worldliest years of my life. I was chasing after everything under the sun, chasing the wind. But I met up with my two best friends from college, and I come to faith. I was new in Jesus. I was a young baby believer. And I was in the car with them, and we got to talking about my new girlfriend, Haley. I started talking to them about how the Lord had, had worked in my life in such a way that I, I call myself a Christian. I started talking to them about our relationship, particularly just in pursuing purity in our relationship. You know what they did? They laughed in my face. They, they mocked me. And it kind of trailed off. I mean, I think they felt bad eventually and kind of came back around like, hey, good, good for you. That's, that's great. But the initial reaction was, man, it's foolish. I was surprised. What's up with you? Like, why, why are you so weird? But to the world, the believer will be weird. Like, you follow God. There's all sorts of things that you do that the world's going to find just really strange. Not the least of which is choosing Jesus instead of choosing to be free from suffering. And their laughter was mingled with an invitation or exhortation when they laughed at me that day in the car. An invitation silently was something like this. Like, come on, man. Just enjoy yourself. Come jump back into the waters. You know what they feel like. Like the flood of debauchery used to, you know, you know what those, those water like? Like, just come back. There's an invitation there with the feelings of silliness, right? Join us in the flood, you know, the waters. And if I could just like practically, if I could shepherd us just for a second here. When you think about pursuing the things of the flesh, sin, like, like willingly choosing self over Christ. You know what a biblical principle is to remember is that sin is never stationary. Like it, it's like a flood that moves Someone once said, it'll always take you farther than you want to go, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin corrupts. You see that in Galatians chapter 6. He who sows to the flesh reaps corruption. Sin begets more sin. But conversely, pursuing righteousness brings about increased righteousness in the people of God. But sin isn't stationary. The current of sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer then you want to stay. But as you turn from sin and live for the will of God, there will be moments when the world will not like you, so they're going to reject you. And their surprise is going to lead to slander. And some of you young people, I would just say significantly in school, with peers, it's true of adults as well, but there's a significant swimming upstream if you're going to be serious about your relationship with God. Because really from youth through college, in some ways, the world doesn't really expect much of you as it relates to pursuing God. They expect you to pursue the things of the world with reckless abandon. So what does it mean to love Jesus more than just loving acceptance from your peers? How do you evaluate your own priorities in light of this text? Are you willing to choose Christ because he's worth it? And because of the joy that he provides in chooosing him that the world can never provide you because ultimately it's what? It's vanity. Even their acceptance is like a chasing of the wind. 
And we should embrace being strange to the world, right? Because we are strangers. Like, we don't belong here. We are pilgrims passing through this land. We live, our life is bound up in another, we're citizens of a different country and a different realm. And Peter assumes that the world is going to be surprised by us. That our behavior and our choices will stand in contrast to the world. We'll be swimming upstream against a grain of culture. And here's where I think real practically I need to level with us in our own hearts. This is for me. I had to be challenged with this. If people aren't surprised by us, if we don't seem strange at all to the world, could it be that there's something wrong with the way that we're living? If we never are confronted with moments where the world looks at us like, what is going on? Like, what is up with you? You see things, you do things, you say things differently. If you never have those moments, we should rightly look at our own lives and wonder, am I really living the kind of Christian life that the Bible depicts honors God? That is a real challenge from this text. Because the assumption is you're not going to fit in. They're not going to accept you in this world. That's why we're called pilgrims. We're just journeying through on the way to another land. And so if we don't have any sense of resistance in this world, if we know nothing but acceptance and are free from ridicule in this life, it may very well be that our lives look no different than the world. And so I encourage you to pray through that. I'm not telling you to, to be belligerent and annoying just so people will hate you. But love Jesus. Walk in righteousness. Make decisions that please God and don't just please man. And you will have moments, and I pray many of them, where the world will look at us and be, there's something different about you. You surprise me. Because I would assume you were going to do this instead of that. And that gives us a moment where we can say, you know what? The difference in me is the difference in him. I'm different because the God that I know is different. That's what we saw early in the book. Be holy as your God is holy. You're a child of the one true God. Your life should be different. And when you're different, because you're different, the world won't accept you the way often we want to be accepted. Verse 5, but they will give account. Those who ridicule you, malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are already dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. They may mock you, but God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, he also will reap. They may judge you, but there's only one judgment that counts, the judgment of God. And he stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Every person, small and great, will stand before the living God. And God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There's no escape from this text to make us more comfortable. We don't like to talk about judgment. But one of the things Peter does in this section is he confronts us with the fact that time is running out. We'll see next week, the end of all things is at hand. Live like you don't have tomorrow. Respond to God as if you have no more breath after this service is over because you don't have any guarantee. 
When this life is over, every single one of us will stand before the one true God. He's ready to judge every single one, 2 Corinthians 5, according to what he has done. Expect resistance from the world, anticipate acceptance from God because of Jesus, and labor to live for him. The wonder of the Christian gospel. This is the gospel, the good news that was preached even to those who are already dead in this text is that Jesus Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. If you leave understanding one thing, understand this. Every single one of us has broken God's law, and that's called sin. As a result of that sin, we are separate from God. We can't be a part of his family. We're alienated from him as far as the east is from the west. And the whole Bible develops a story of how God righted what was wrong. And he crucified Jesus in our place as our substitute. Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And the good news is that we get to be a part of his family, not because we're good enough for long enough, but because Jesus lived perfectly, died in our place, and rose again victorious over the grave. Trust in him. And if you have trusted in Christ, that moment of judgment is a moment where we get to be rewarded for our faithfulness to God. And we don't have to worry about being judged because of our sin. But our sin was already dealt with on the cross. And as God's people, I pray that there be great motivation for us. That one day we'll, we get to meet God face to face that we long to hear the words like, well done. Well done, good and faithful, different servant. Although they judged you in the earth, you walked as if you were alive in the spirit of God. That's what this last section means. Although they judged you, that judgment may be cast against you in this life from the people of this world, there in your lives, Maybe live not according to the opinions and judgments of the world, but according to the Spirit of God. As we transition to take the Lord's Supper together, I want to draw our attention to just one kind of correlation with this text. In this text, there's this, there's this view of something past, something present, and something future. So in the text, there's this past break with a former manner of life. The time has already sufficed for you to mess with the things of the world and chase after them. There's a past break from those things. There's a present commitment to living for the will of God. And there's a view to the future, a view to the end of time where God will judge every single person. So we see that in our text. And in communion, there's a similar view to something past, something present, and something future. As we take the Lord's Supper together, as we take the cup and the cracker together, there's a, there's a view backward to the sufficient work of Jesus. Body was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven and be washed as white as snow. And that's a previous work that we look back toward as a completion of everything that needed to be done for our salvation. There's also the present, and this is where it's relevant, I think, to some of the challenge you may have felt, I pray you felt as we were going through this text. There's a present evaluation does your expectation of the Christian life match up with the Bible? Do you, have you been pursuing the mind of Christ so that the life of Christ might be seen in you? 
It's likely for all of us, there are various ways we would say no, not completely. And that's part of this moment as well. Is that presently we evaluate the condition of our hearts. We don't take it too quickly as if there's nothing wrong about us even now. But we confess, we agree with God that certain things, certain pursuits of ours even now are wrong. They don't align with his heart for us. And we repent, we turn away from those and we turn to God. There's a present reality and evaluation through communion. There's also a future vision filled with hope that this temporary meal, yeah, we'll call it a meal, this cracker in this cup is symbolic of the one day as the family of God, the saints for all time from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation that we'll sit together with a common savior at a table with the father eating a meal that will never end. A forever feast in the presence of God. And so may you be reminded through this as well that that's your hope. Uh, Chris is going to come up and we're going to just play a little bit as, as you take the elements. Let me just encourage you. If you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus, like you've heard the message today, you've heard it in the past, and you know you've never surrendered to him, this is not for you. This is an act of remembrance and proclamation that our faith is and trust is in Jesus alone. If you have trusted in Christ, then come and take. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus for you. Evaluate your own heart in light of what God says should be true about you and then think forward to the hope that's ours. And God, as we take this, I pray that we wouldn't take it hastily. I pray that we wouldn't take it lightly. And God, I pray that our our minds, our way of thinking, and our way of life would be aligned with your way of thinking and Jesus, your way of life. That your pursuits would increasingly more become our pursuits. Your passions, our passions. Your words, our words. That we live lives that are different from the world. That we demonstrate through our pursuit of you that the time that we've spent in the past chasing other things suffices to prove to us that life is found in you and not in this world. Would you help us even through this simple act of communion and devotion and remembrance to you to be stirred to love you more? Jesus, we thank you that in you there is salvation for all nations. And there may very well be someone in this room that somehow thinks that maybe what they have done is so great, so significant, so dark, that the light could never penetrate and heal. And so I pray that in Jesus' name, that you would drive people in this room to the cross. Spirit of God, I don't have the personality nor the time to commend you in such a way to these people that their hearts would be changed. And so I pray that you'd do that. You change our hearts, conform us to your image, help us to love you more, amaze us at your grace because your grace is amazing. Thank you that we've been brought to God, not by any work of our own, but through the work of Jesus. And I pray this time would be a sweet time of worship for us as we come to the table together.